There's a question that says, why, we, why should we avoid suffering? Is it not a part of life? <laughs> the, the way the Buddha taught is not to avoid suffering so much, although in some ways, sometimes that's correct, but normally he uh, taught that we should know suffering, understand what suffering is. Uh, it's the first noble truth, dukkha. He said dukkha should be known, should be understood. And as you come to know what dukkha is, suffering is, then it helps you to also understand what its cause is and then how to remedy it. So you could compare it to an illness. If you've got an illness... You go to the doctor, he'll ask you what the symptoms are, won't he? He'll say, what's wrong? Where does it hurt? Or what's the problem? So that's the doctor finding out what the suffering is, getting to know it better. You can just say, well, I'm ill, but that doesn't help the doctor at all, does it? He has to find out the symptoms from what you say, from doing tests, from asking questions, doing tests, researching to find out the symptoms. Then he makes his analysis, he makes his diagnosis, and then he'll give you treatment. He'll say, well, you've got uh, a headache because of this problem, you've got a back pain because of this, you've got to do this to end your back pain. If it's a, a busy doctor, he'll probably give you a few pills and just say, well, take these and you'll be all right. <laughs> maybe it works, maybe not. But if the doctor's not too busy and the, um, he does what he's required, he'll look into it, he'll give you some treatment, either medicine or a procedure or something that will help you to remedy that illness the best that you can. And then hopefully you get a good outcome, you, you end your illness, your pain, whatever the problem is. But it all begins with just knowing, understanding first, what is the problem? You can't just give medicine out without knowing what, what it's for. So that's why we have to get to know dukkha. So the first noble truth of dukkha, the Buddha said, well, in, in short, it's old age, sickness and death. These are states or the, the truths of living as a human being. We all get old, we get sick, one day we have to die. Truths of uh, pain that we feel in the body, pain in the mind, feelings of sorrow, lamenta lamentation, despair. You know, somebody we love dies or is very ill. You know, we get very upset, we get anxious, worried, feel sad. And that's where you really see dukkha, isn't it? When you're, the things and the people you love, or yourself, you know, when you're under pressure or under threat, threat of uh, loss of life, threat of illness, pr pressure in different ways. These are all kinds of dukkha. Um, the Buddha said this is something we should get to know and understand. Well, what is dukkha? How does it apply to us? How are we involved with dukkha in life? Or what part of life has dukkha with it? Another way he said to, to understand dukkha is to look at it as being separated from everything that you like and love. So again, that could be the people you love. When you separate from someone you love, your family member, your husband, your wife, your child, your friend, even if it's only for temporary periods, sometimes that brings up feeling of suffering, doesn't it? Separation from the things we like. So in the winter, everybody complains about how cold it is in Melbourne because they're separated from the warm weather that they like. Uh, <laughs> when you're ill, you, like a lot of people are coughing today, have colds, coughs, you're separated from what you like, which is good health. So separation from what we love and like, it can be experiences, it can be things. You know, like when you're a kid, 
They take away your favorite toy. All you do is cry and complain all day. When you're an adult, maybe it's a little bit more subtle, but you know, they, somebody crashes your car, you can complain all day. Uh, somebody breaks your computer, can complain about it all day. So, you know, just being an adult doesn't free us from dukkha, just maybe changes the, the object of the dukkha, but it's still dukkha, isn't it? Separation for what I love and like is dukkha. Being united with what I don't like is dukkha. So it's sort of the opposite, isn't it? When, you, when things you don't like come around, it's dukkha. When you lose what you've, what you've got in some way, people steal your things, take your things away, break your things, things wear out, get old. You're united with what you don't want, which is the loss of what you like. Or it could be the words of other people. People speak to you in a way you don't like. They're insensitive or they're rude or unkind in their words. We don't like it. So that's what we call united with what we don't like. So it's, in short, it's painful feelings, isn't it? Painful feelings. You know, we don't like pain when we meditate. We always feel happy when we sit and there's no pain. But if a bit of pain comes, then we become united with what we don't like. And that's dukkha, isn't it? Or mental pain, it could be just a memory of something that happened. What somebody said or did or what we did that we didn't like. And you remember that and you become united with what you don't like in that memory. And then you might feel some mental pain or anguish or fear or worry. And so you have mental suffering. So separation from what I love and like is dukkha. Being united with what I don't like is dukkha. Then he summarizes, he said, in short, not getting what you want, not getting your wishes fulfilled is dukkha. So you can meditate on this if you're still not clear on what dukkha is. It's just write down on a piece of paper how many times have your wishes not been fulfilled in life. (laughs) Since you were born, since you can remember, how many times have you, you, you didn't get, it didn't work out the way you want, you didn't get your wishes fulfilled. So we, we get our suffering, say, from relationships. People don't do what we want, say what we want, behave in the way we want. Our wishes is not fulfilled. Having children, sometimes wishes are not fulfilled, isn't it? You have children, lots of dukkha there. You want your children to be the top of the class, and you know there can only be one child at the top of the class, and the other 20 can't be. So the dukkha of not getting your child at the top of the class or in the school team, <laughs> or just getting your child to like you and behave normally, <laughs> maybe is a, a cause for dukkha, isn't it? Your child doesn't do what you want, they ignore you, they disagree with you, they argue with you. <laughs> Endless child suffering, child dukkha. Not getting your wishes fulfilled. It could be ambitions to do with work. You want to get on in your job, get your, do your job well, get promotions, get more money, get recognition. <laughs> dukkha again. Monks have dukkha as well, not getting your wishes fulfilled. Maybe monk also wants to get things, maybe... You know, sometimes monks, because we don't have money, you can't always get what you want when you want it as a monk. <laughs> Maybe you want a, on a hot day, you want a nice cold drink, but you can't have because there's nothing available. Or on a cold day, you want a nice hot drink, it's not available. Maybe sometimes on a hard bed on a cold winter's night, you want think of a nice soft, warm bed with an electric blanket. <laughs> They don't get it, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so monks have uh, wishes that are not fulfilled. Uh, everyone in life has wishes that are not fulfilled. Ambitions, wishes, wants, desires. So and the Buddha said, in short, not getting your wishes fulfilled is dukkha, is suffering. 
Now, going back to the question, why should we avoid suffering? Well, obviously, suffering is suffering. It's not pleasant, in short. Um, some suffering is obvious as suffering. Pain, um, physical pain, um, various challenges, obstacles in life are obvious suffering. Some suffering is subtle. Maybe the suffering of attaching to pleasure can turn into suffering, can't it, in a sense... If you attach to the pleasure of, say, a certain kind of nice food, you like that nice food, then, of course, when you've finished eating that nice food, well, then maybe the pleasure is gone and your mind goes back to wanting the pleasure again. And sensuality, sense objects, the pleasure we get from our senses is like that. You, know, you wear some nice clothes, new clothes, and they look good, but then after a while they fade or they get dirty. Or you just see them over and over again until you get more used to them. And then the pleasure of wearing nice new clothes changes into uh, less pleasure, maybe even to boredom. Or even maybe you want to take them off once they get dirty. You can't bear them anymore. <laughs> the nature of sensual world is like that. Even sense pleasure turns into pain, turns into boredom or... It has its limitation, it's impermanent. So in every pleasure there's also some suffering hiding there. So there's very obvious suffering, there's very um, subtle suffering we have in life. Obviously there's a certain amount of suffering that we can avoid and we should avoid, like you know, the suffering of hunger, I think everyone agrees, born into the world, not only ourselves, but we should try and feed everyone. Terrible suffering for somebody to have no food. So the Buddha even said, you know, it's your duty as a human to, to find the basic necessities of life, to overcome that level of suffering, the suffering of hunger. We need shelter, we need a house and home. We need clothes and things to keep us warm. Um, the basic necessities of life, medicine to deal with illness, it's not wrong to seek them out to overcome that level of suffering. And the Buddha said it's correct, go and, go and find the basic necessities of life, which means you might have to go out and work, and that's not wrong to go out and work, just so you have enough happiness that you can live in this world with a reasonable level of comfort. So in that sense, it's correct to avoid the suffering. It would be very difficult. You couldn't practice Dhamma very easily if you were starving or you had nowhere to live or you're in extreme difficulty. But once you've achieved that level of happiness, which I think everyone has, then you can uh, practice Dhamma. So to avoid some suffering is correct. Or the suffering that comes you know, when you make bad karma in the sense if you're unskillful in the way you relate to other people you create suffering maybe you have regret um, about what you've said and done if you've done something unskillful or that person that you've hurt or harmed will want to harm you because they, they're unhappy with what you've done so they try and get back at you that kind of suffering we should avoid shouldn't we and we can avoid by keeping precepts if you're careful what you say and do in life, then an awful lot of suffering is removed. You know, in our families, if we treat each other with respect and we're patient, tolerant of each other, of our differences of opinion, uh, we share what we have in our family, then your family will be fairly harmonious and you have a lot of happiness and hopefully not too much suffering. Or in our workplace, it's the same. If you're very, very selfish or self-centered in your behavior and you don't care about others and you say you do what you, what you want without thinking of others, then you get suffering coming back to you. Don't you? People don't like you. People try and harm you. And they, it creates obstacles in life. So some kinds of suffering we should try to avoid. And then other kinds of suffering we just can't avoid whatever, can we? We can't avoid getting older every day. Nobody can avoid that. Nobody can avoid getting ill sometimes. In the best will in the world, you try your hardest to avoid illness, 
try to be clean, try to avoid the germs in every possible way, keep healthy, exercise, eat well, do all your best, but sooner or later you might get ill, you might have an accident or something. It, it, it happens to us as human beings from time to time. So in that sense, we can't avoid the suffering of old age, can't avoid the suffering of illness. Can't even avoid the suffering of, you know, sometimes people do treat us unkindly. We can't control the world to the point that we can make everyone say and do what we want. We can't make, even the, our loved ones won't always say what we want to hear, do what we want them to do. And sooner or later, it'll, um, there'll be a case where somebody you love or is close to you will, will say or do something that you don't agree with, don't like. And we have some suffering. So even that we can't avoid. So a wise person then, well, how do we deal with suffering? We have to recognize it's the nature of our existence as human beings that there is some suffering involved with it. It's not all a smooth, even ride. And we, we, we would be unwise to expect that. So in a modern way of looking at it, you might say your modern way of describing this is you manage your expectations or you... you consider your expectations what is reasonable and unreasonable and it would be unreasonable to expect life to be all sweetened without any kind of suffering it would be unreasonable wouldn't it because we all having been born we get old we get sick sometimes and living in the world sometimes other people are beyond our control and they do and say things that we don't agree with or harm us in different ways so it would be unreasonable to expect to always have pleasant, nice experiences through life. But there are some times when we get pleasant, nice experiences so that life has a mixture, doesn't it? So a wise person sees, oh, there is some pleasure in life. It's not it's all suffering all the time. We get pleasure from doing good when we practice generosity and kindness. Generally, we get a lot of pleasure from that. We feel happy when we're kind to others, just as when people are kind to us. We appreciate that. When we live in a, you know, a moral way, we're not going out to harm other people or exploiting others, then we get a lot of happiness from that, just as when we meet similar people who don't try and harm us. We get happiness from our meditation. When you become more peaceful, you do get a lot of happiness. And wisdom brings the highest happiness. You know, when you understand what dukkha is, what its cause is, how to abandon it, that's the highest happiness because then you can really free your mind from its misunderstanding around dukkha. So suffering is something to be known, understood. Uh, it can't always be avoided. We're born, we're involved with suffering to some extent and that's why we have the Buddhist path to help us deal with it wisely. There's another question. Ajahn, we all get affected by praise and blame. Can you please give some advice? Well, it carries on, I guess, from the last question. Praise and blame are part of life. And the Buddha himself said, even a Buddha gets some blame sometimes, criticism. Doesn't mean to say it's justified or worthy, true, but... It happens to all of us because we've all lived in the world long enough, many lifetimes. We've made enough karma that there's the causes out there for blame, criticism to come our way. So you might be able to go through life with very little criticism, but sooner or later you'll receive some blame, some criticism. And some criticism is helpful, isn't it? When people say, they give us some advice or say you did that wrong you, know, you could do it like this and it would be better as we grow up and as we practice that's useful isn't it sometimes people point out our mistakes or our faults and if you have the right attitude you can use that to your advantage so they actually help you if no one told us anything ever gave us any feedback in life you probably find it very difficult to learn about the world and about yourself so we get some constructive criticism, help from our families, teachers, friends, Dharma teachers. Many people give us 
help in that way. So blame or criticism isn't always bad, always uh, to be avoided. Though sometimes it's hard to take, isn't it? Nobody uh, particularly likes being criticized because we have a sense of self, we have pride. But if you can understand that you're still on your spiritual path, there's a, still, you still have more to learn about how to make the mind peaceful, how to live skillfully, then you can see the value of some criticism. And then uh, the opposite, praise, well, we tend to uh, always seek praise, don't we? Which again is, in the end, it's impossible, isn't it? You're never going to get all praise all the time. As they said, you can never please all the people all of the time. So you might get praise from one, but then someone else criticizes you. You often hear that, don't you? When somebody's getting praise in a group of people, then there'll always be one at the back who says, oh, but what about that? And they did that wrong, or they're not good there. <laughs> if you ever notice people talking, it's often like that. Um, that's because of this karma. We've made karma in the world. So not everybody is going to praise us. Some people give us blame all the time. Even the people we love and are very close to you, know, they might praise us most of the time or give us nice words, say things we want to hear most of the time. But rarely will they say all the time. So how do we deal with this wisely? We have to practice mindfulness and recognize these things for what they are. These con- We say they're conditions of life, that there is this condition of praise and a condition of blame. The Buddha's word was their winds, the worldly winds. Like they praise you, they say nice words, good words, true sometimes, sometimes not true, but it's like a wind blowing over you. They blame you, it's like another kind of wind blowing you from the other way. Again, maybe true, maybe not true, but it's like a wind coming your way. You hear the words then what do you do? Well, if you practice mindfulness, you can understand that oh, there's praise coming and there's blame coming. In essence, what is it? It's just sound, isn't it? It's sound vibrations created by the, the words of other people. Your ear vibrates with the sound of those words. That's all it is. It's just sound vibration and then it passes away. So somebody in their practice, might just be able to know sound as sound, hearing as hearing, and let it go at that. But as we hear the words, we always give meaning to them because we have memory and we have the ability to think. You, know, you hear words and you give meaning to them, and that's where the problem starts, isn't it? If it's praise, well, you give meaning, oh, this is praise, and you tend to want that praise like it. So we attach the meaning to those words, we like it, we feel good, and then often we seek more. So if someone praises us, well, we keep trying to do things and get recognition, we tend to go that way because we like the pleasure of praise. If it's criticism, you give the meaning to those words as, I don't like this, this is criticism, usually. And you, you, you become maybe upset or hurt. They blame you, you start to... Defend yourself, make excuses either in your mind or even outwardly give um, some kind of defense or argue or whatever. That's because you're giving a lot of meaning, importance to those words. But when you're practicing mindfulness, you're seeing the whole process from the start, the praise or the blame, the words, the hearing the words, the giving of meaning to them, the feeling of pleasure or pain. And then if mindfulness and wisdom is strong enough, you can just let it drop there. So you know, oh, I'm receiving praise now, I'm receiving blame now. You can even, if you're peaceful enough, well, you can think on then, well, what they're saying, is it true? If it's true, then you can accept it. If it's praise and it's true, you just accept, oh, this is correct. They notice what I did or what happened and they praised me. Or if it's criticism, that you say, oh, it's true what they say, I did that wrong, or I made a mistake there, or I'm not a very good person there, I better change. You can do that. But if you're not mindful enough, we tend to react, don't we? So the praise, we like it and get attached to it. Blame, we dislike it, we get upset by it. And that's where we can practice improving our mindfulness. 
and you can deal with praise and blame much better. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, new to meditation, they once gave us a practice to um, speak to other meditators in the group to learn to practice to speak in a neutral way where you're neither praising or blaming and neither seeking praise or blame. So they gave us a a number of phrases we had to just practice saying to other people. I always remember one of the phrases they gave us was, the cow is in the field. (laughs) You just practice saying that phrase, the cow is in the field to your friend. And that's it. And you're just being mindful of saying a very ordinary phrase, the cow is in the field, which is true, but it's neither praising nor blaming. You're not saying that it's a really nice cow in the field, <laughs> or you're not saying, I really hate that cow in the field. <laughs> you're saying, oh, the cow is in the field. And all it is, you're just learning to be mindful of saying these simple phrases and then the person listening, receiving the simple phrase, oh, the cow is in the field. They answer you back, the cow is in the field. The cow is in the field. (laughs) It sounds very boring, but it's a study in in just speaking in a very neutral way, something very ordinary. And, uh, you know, it gives you some kind of insight what it's like just to hear words but without giving a lot of meaning to them and getting emotional about them. So the more mindfulness you practice, generally you you can work with praise and blame better. Often it changes, doesn't it? If you know why they're blaming you, it changes. Like many people come, they they come to the monastery and they say, there's this guy at work, a man or woman at work, and they're always backstabbing, always getting at me, always criticizing me, always having a go at me, either behind my back to my face. And then you always ask, well, why do they do that? What's the problem? And often they don't know. I don't know, they just do it. And then you send people off, go off and find out more about that person. Often you find out that this person who's always complaining about others, they've got some personal problem. Maybe they have some illness which is re- bringing up a lot of dukkha waiting for them. Or they have a marriage problem or you know, they have a problem with their children or they have some problem in their life. So they have a lot of suffering and then it's coming out in this way that they start to pray uh, criticize others or blame others so that's one way sometimes you, you you look deeper into the situation why is this person blaming and sometimes it becomes obvious and then you can deal with it better Ajahn Chah used to talk about you walk down the road in your village every day and there's this guy over the other side of the road who's, every time he sees you he starts to hurl abuse at you so you terrible so and so so after a while, you know, every day this guy keeps abusing you in public. You feel very upset. You know, why do they keep being rude to me? And then after a while you get angry. Oh, there's so-and-so. Every day he's angry and abuses me, shouts at me. I've never done anything to him. Why is he doing it to me? Get very, very upset, angry. And then one day, after a few days of that, one day uh, your neighbor comes up and says, Did you know that guy's crazy? He abuses everyone. Oh, just hearing those words, all the anger disappears because you realize, oh, that guy's crazy. He just says things like that to anybody he sees. You don't take it so personally then, do you? You can let go of the blame. You can understand better what what the situation is. A lot of the blame in life is like that, isn't it? We don't have enough understanding of that person or the situation, so we attach to the words... We have, often have our pride, our ego. Nobody can say anything to me. <laughs> so sometimes we have to stop and just practice mindfulness and maybe we'll understand more where, where the, praise, uh, the blame is coming from. It could be praise as well. Sometimes people praise us because they just want something from us. One reason. Another question. I find that to practice mindfulness in lay life very difficult as the partner has to be the same. (laughs) Example, a place for everything and everything in its place. Mm. 
the husband and wife suffering. So avoid suffering. The first question is, should we avoid suffering? Well, if you don't get married, then you avoid a lot of suffering in life. So I got out of that one. It's true, uh, the Buddha said, ideally, if you pick a partner in life, pick a partner who has the same level of faith as you do because then you can both support each other in the practice of Dhamma. So if you have a similar level of faith, you're both interested to progress in your spiritual path, you're interested to meditate, you're interested to listen to Dhamma, that's ideal because then you'll both be tending to have similar outlook on life and you can probably remedy your problems and differences of opinion quicker and easier. If one has faith, the other not, then it tends to be a bit imbalanced and sometimes there's more of a tug of war between views and outlooks. But even if our faith is similar, husband and wife, um, still there tends to be problems, doesn't there? <laughs> this is maybe more because of our inner kilesas, our greed, our anger, our delusions which come up and sometimes get the better of us. So the best way to deal with you know, the difficulties of, of uh, partners and, and living in a family, living in a relationship, is to practice mindfulness. Because you come, become more aware of your own intentions, your own thoughts and mental states. And you can start to see those intentions which are leading you to harm others, harm, say, harm your partner. So if it's intentions of greed or selfishness, you know, sooner or later that will bring its karmic result. If you're being too selfish in a relationship, the other person will feel uh, they're being maybe exploited or harmed in some way or not getting enough care and attention. And just as if somebody is selfish to us, we don't like it. They're always getting their way and we never get a say. <laughs> Uh, they always get the first say and I, I'm always second place or they always get to make the decisions and I don't or they, they choose where, uh, where things go and I don't. You know, if someone's too selfish, self-centered, then it doesn't make for harmony. So sometimes we have to learn how to let go of our more selfish desires. It's obvious, you know, everyone understands this, but mindfulness helps us to do that by becoming more aware of them. Because often we're not aware of when we're being selfish. You know, it only comes out when we start looking back at our own behavior, looking at what we're thinking, thinking about what we're saying, asking ourselves, was that the right thing to say? Was that fair? Was it kind? The Buddha said in relationships between people, you always have to get in the habit of thinking before you do anything in the family, at work, before you say anything, even just the way you're thinking about other people, look at what your, your intentions, your, your thoughts are and ask yourself, is this really for the benefit of me, for the benefit of them, for the benefit of us both or not? And if it is, well, you can, it's probably okay to carry on thinking those thoughts in that way to hold that attitude in that way. It's probably okay to speak in that way. It should be okay to act in that way because you've thought it through first. And then even as you're saying those words or doing that thing, then you have to review it. Say, is this really for my benefit, their benefit, both of our benefit? So, you know, at the beginning of an argument, you think, should I really say this? <laughs> During the argument, he says, mm, should I really be saying this? <laughs> then at the end of the argument, was that really the right thing to say? Was that for my benefit, their benefit, both of our benefit? Yeah, occasionally it would be. It's not that you should never have a, a discussion or a difference of opinion, but you know, at any time where there's a friction between two people, you, have to, you, you can employ this principle. You think, and what am I saying and doing here? Is it really for their benefit and my benefit? If you're being selfish, you have to admit, don't you? oh, I'm only thinking of myself here, the other person I'm not caring about. If you become mindful, you recognize that, you see that, and you can see the suffering not only for them, but for yourself. There's any kind of thought or action rooted in greed or anger, selfishness, it's always going to make our own mind unhappy.
That's the karmic result. You have to look at this carefully and see, as a thought, any kind of more greedy, more selfish thought, and for sure anger, when you look at it with mindfulness, you can see your state of mind is not peaceful, it's not clear, it's not happy in itself. By its nature, these, these, these kinds of thoughts and the speech, the action comes from them. We call them defiled speech, defiled action. And you can see that. It defiles the mind, takes away its own, the mind's own brightness and happiness. Now, if you're being very, very selfish, you know, your mind doesn't feel peaceful and bright, does it? You generally have a lot of um, thoughts coming up, a lot of agitation, a lot of moodiness. When we become selfish, we often become very kind of strong-willed um, and we tend to cut off other people so in the long run you, you see the karma of that is that other people are unhappy even we're unhappy the mindfulness helps to, the more we practice that and the more we think about our, what we're doing what we're saying then the more we can see that What is the meaning of opening the three worlds by Ajahn Mahabua every year? Oh. <laughs> this is a ceremony I heard uh, Venerable Ajahn Mahabua has been um, having at his monastery the last few years. The worlds are, are just talking about the, the different realms of existence, both what we can see and what we can't see. So like this world we live in, human beings and the animals we can see around, this is the gama loka, sensual world, in the sense that we have physical bodies and we have eyes and ears and nose and we can experience um, through the senses that we have. There's also the Brahma worlds, in the worlds of um, the gods, Brahma gods, people who practiced, developed jhana meditation, Rupa Brahmas are Rupa Brahmas. Uh, they're classified as a different realm, different kinds of worlds. Uh, heaven realms are considered still as sensual realms, a lot of sensual happiness in heaven. Uh, nice sense contact, very pleasant, not much suffering. The lower realms, the Abhaya Bhumis, the Abhaya realms, are the realms of suffering, like animals, ghosts, hell realms. So when they have this big dana ceremony, they're just it's opening the worlds, meaning dedicating the merits of the, uh, the people who all come to the monastery. They make offerings, they keep the precepts, listen to dhamma, practice meditation, and they dedicate, share the merits of all they do with all beings in all realms so it's completely uh, all inclusive nobody is missed out sharing the merits of the goodness of their practice uh, at that occasion with all beings everywhere and the Buddha said when people die according to their karma or maybe some do not come back as human beings some are reborn in lower realms ghost realms, hell realms some are born in higher realms and particularly the ones in the lower realms, they're in a state of suffering. People who die still haven't resolved some of their karma. They die with an unhappy state of mind. Maybe their next life, they're in a lower realm, as in the sense there's more suffering in that realm, more suffering, they say, as a human. And so people, it's natural that human beings want to make merit, particularly for relatives and friends, share the merits with their friends, relatives who may be reborn, and you don't know where they are. So it's not like you're sure they're suffering or they're not suffering, you can't be sure. So you just make merit and dedicate it to beings in all realms as a, as a good practice to do. But better to make merit for yourself while you're alive than wait for your relatives to do it for you when you're dead. You'd be more certain in your happiness Jan, thank you very much by holding, for holding these retreats, especially the two all-night ones in May and December. We all look forward to these events as this is the only place we can further our practice to end suffering. 
In this place there is so much energy due to the purity, virtue and dedication of the Sangha. It's praise. <laughs> Towards their practice uh, in the Dhamma. Through the merit of all these and being so compassionate towards the lay community, may all the Sangha here reach the deathless realm in this life itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Oh, Anamodana for your kind words and appreciation. Seeing as these are questions and answers, this isn't quite a question, but I'll give one comment in that you say, this is the only place we can further our practice to end suffering. I would disagree because you have to learn to practice in every place. I understand the monastery, we, we set it up so it's more peaceful and it's perhaps more conducive to practice. It's helpful. But that shouldn't be, mean that when you go home you turn off and stop practicing because that would be a great shame. We have to take what we learn in the monastery back with us. So the words of Dhamma you hear from me or other teachers, you know, take them away and try and remember them. Use them again. Think of them again in your daily life. Don't just forget them. <laughs> the Dhamma is something precious and those words at t different times they can come up and give you inspiration or actually give you some insight how to deal with a problem or, or some suffering in life. And the mindfulness you practice here, you, you gain some mindfulness, maybe you gain some peace or insight. You can go home and practice more. Try and find the same level of peace and mindfulness that you had here. You know, as a goal, you can work towards that. Now, obviously, it's difficult when you're at home because there's a lot of distraction, family, work. And we have um, a tendency just to follow our habits so we like to sleep in bed in the morning and we like to eat the food we want and we like to have entertainments and distractions and we read and we watch TV and we're on the computer and we talk. So it is a bit harder. There's, in the monastery it's simplified, isn't it? There's less distractions so you have more, to f you can just focus your energy on the Dhamma. But try and take back some of this with you. you know, if you're in daily life, you might have your own routine where you have a time of day where you don't answer the phone, you don't use the computer, you don't use the TV, you don't talk to people. You might have half an hour or an hour every day where you just quietly sit down and do some meditation, do some chanting, read a Dhamma book or listen to a Dhamma talk on a tape, a CD. If you get into that good habit, that can become part of your life just as all the other distractions are part of your life. But it's up, for, up to us, each individual, to decide that. We have to decide, oh, how am I going to use my time? How can I further my practice? If you're a monk, usually you get in big trouble if you go to your teacher and say, I can't practice in this place, I want to go somewhere else. <laughs> big trouble. Ajahn Chah will be very, very cutting with monks, particularly young monks. They say, oh, where shall I go and spend my range retreat this year? And he just it's say, it's tell them that you know their their thinking is all wrong. And you say you, the practice is not about where you are; it's how you're practicing any place, whether you're in this temple, you're in another one, you're at home, whether you're on your own, you're with other people. You know, it's how you're using your mind, how you're training yourself, wherever you are. So it's getting that attitude right. You have to learn how to put your effort into your practice where you are right now. Because your mind is with you right now, every day, isn't it? Every moment of every day. So if you're with your kids, well, you're practicing Dhamma with your kids. They become part of your practice. You know, if you're at work, well, you're practicing Dhamma with your work. How can you do that? How can you be mindful of the work you're doing? You know, which means usually you think about how you can do it well, concentrate on the job. How can you use your intelligence to get the job done? Bring up effort. You know, many, many teachings the Buddha gave we can use in daily life. Like he, he once gave a teaching, he said, Buddhism is a teaching of effort and energy. He says, anything you do in life that increases your laziness is not Buddhism. So you can use that reflection every day. You say on a Sunday morning you're lying in bed 
Say, am I increasing my laziness or not? <laughs> you can use that reflection to get yourself out of bed or you know, if you're just indulging, sort of, you've got free time, but you say, oh, I can't be bothered, I'll just watch a movie or something. Am I increasing my laziness or not? You know, there's, these are reflections the Buddha said you can use. It's, it's a religion of energy, bringing up effort, attempting to bring up more mindfulness, put more effort into keeping precepts, uh, being effort, putting effort into being kind, compassionate, uh, into dana, sharing what you have. All of this requires effort. So you know, if you're ever thinking, oh, how do I practice here, or am I practicing right? Was that, am I getting more lazy or more energetic? A yeah, very good reflection. Mm. In, as you meditate, you know, even today, as you meditate, am I being lazy or trying harder? Am I putting more effort in or less? You can see at any time in your day that that, that reflection can be quite helpful. Another question. Attraction towards the opposite sex is A, just conceptual, illusionary, which can be removed with wisdom, or B, is it Bija law, which we cannot change? How should it be wisely or correctly understood? Well, both those answers are, have some truth to them, I think. Because we're born in the world, you know, as you, once you're born as a human being, the very fact that we were born is because of the power of our attraction for the human body. If you understand what the Buddha was saying, he, he talks about the mind and body as separate things, nama, rupa. And when a human being is conceived, say in the womb of the mother, there's a consciousness which joins the embryo and a baby is born and it starts to uh, incubate in the mother's womb and then we get birth and then we kids and then we grow up. And all of that comes through the desire of the consciousness for birth and for, to take a human form. So you could say in, in, in another way, you could say we're here because we wanted to be here. We volunteered to be here. So anytime you're suffering in life, you just say, this is my fault because I wanted to be here. If you didn't want to be here, you wouldn't have been born. That's the truth of it. You know, whether you want say now, I, I wish I was never born, and people do say that. It's a very common line in pop songs, isn't it? I wish I'd never been born. <laughs> but it's just a thought, isn't it? It's not truth, isn't it? You're born because you wanted to be born. Your consciousness already has an accumulation of desire and attachment from past life. So you came here, you wanted to be born, so you have already an invested attachment in your physical body. We like to be humans, we like this body, and why do we like it? Because it gives us pleasure. In the eyes, we like to see things. Ears like to hear pleasant sounds, taste, touch, smell. And sexual desire is considered the strongest kind of sensual desire because sexual desire brings the most of sense contact. Eyes, ears, taste, smell, touch, all very strongly stimulated. So it's the most deepest desire we have as human beings. And it's rooted in this very attachment to our own bodies. Before we even think about another person, we're already attached to ourselves. The other person just increases that, so our eyes become infatuated, say, with the, the form, usually the form of the opposite sex. And you know, it's not just when you're young and you fall in love, you know, that's probably when it's at its most extreme, but it's all through life. Not just, you know, just, I haven't reached 70 years old yet, but I bet when you're 70 you can still have luster eyes, <laughs> from what I hear, it's true. Um, because we still have eyes, we still have ears, we still have nose, tongue, taste, smell, everything. So lust is very powerful, deeply ingrained. Um, defilement. So the way the Buddha said to look at this is to, to practice, one way we can practice very well that deals with this is to see beyond 
the superficial reality of what we are craving for with sexual desire. You know, usually it's the pleasure that comes from the opposite sex, most of the sexual act and also just being with the opposite sex, the way they look, everything about them is stimulating. So you have to look deeper than that. So we have what we call the Asupa practice, where you'd start looking deeper, using your mind to investigate deeper into the human body. And you see, ah, oh, beyond the superficial beauty, which is real, it's not like it's denying that fact. Beyond the superficial beauty of this body, your own body, other people's bodies, if you say you peeled the skin off as a practice in your mind, as a mental exercise, well, what do you get? It's not the same, is it? If you were to see, um, you know, like a corpse in, um, if you ever go to those museums or an autopsy in a, a hospital where they peel the skin off, you know, nobody likes that. It's not attractive anymore. You peel the skin off, you get all the smell of, of the guts, very smelly. People often even throw up. As monks, sometimes we go to uh, autopsies to study this just to bring our view into balance about the human body. And several times I've been in an autopsy and they, they, there's a corpse on a table and they split open the stomach and they pull the skin back. And you see all the organs, just like in an operation in the hospital, you see the, the, the heart, the, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys. And when you get to the stomach, often they sort of pierce the stomach and all the smell comes out and then sometimes the monks suddenly they're on the floor and they, oh and uh, a monk has gone down you have to pat them on the back and take them outside because there's a very strong smell and you see the inside of the body which especially the first time it's quite overwhelming and even the smell sticks with you go outside it's still sticking to your robes uh, so it's quite a tough practice so maybe you you don't have to go to an autopsy. You just begin thinking first, using your mind, visualizing, conceptualizing. Just in the way, like, it's very easy to think about what we like about, say, another person, isn't it? You know, if you fall in love, you can think about that person all day. The way they look, the way their hair is, the way their face is, the shape of their body, the way they dress, the way they speak. You know, if you've ever been in that state of love, you can think all day about those superficial aspects of the person, can't you? Well, in this practice, you go beyond and you say, well, that person I love, what happens if they were on an autopsy table and I <laughs> cut them in half? And, you know, they're dead, obviously. Um, cut them in half. You know, if I saw their lungs, would I get as infatuated if I saw their lungs? Or if I saw their stomach and you know what they'd had to eat last night <laughs> pulled out of their stomach, would I get as infatuated? Now this seems a bit crazy or extreme, but it's a very useful practice to bring your mind back to balance, to see truth about the human body. It could be your body, you're contemplating your body, or you're contemplating somebody you love or just an imaginary person, it doesn't matter. And you're bringing your mind to the reality that this human body on the inside is not so attractive. What does it do? It brings your lust down. So you don't find the human body quite so attractive, quite so overwhelming. Often when people first practice like this, they're, because they're going against their, their lustful habit quite strongly, often they go a bit, get a bit angry. <laughs> It's like taking away the, the thing they love the most so they get a bit kind of irritable. You might notice this particularly with monks when they're doing a lot of body contemplation. They become a bit irritable. and uh, So you have to be careful not to overdo it. Otherwise it could make you a bit depressed, I guess. But the way you're doing it, you're training your wisdom just to balance up your view to see the human body. It has its superficial attraction, but inwardly it's not that attractive. And as we age, you also can contemplate your own body. As you age, you're, you're getting less and less attractive. And, and for sure, when you die, you know, nobody likes a corpse. You know, there's many times in, in the life of the Buddha, you know, there were situations where the Buddha could teach this. Like, you know, the monk who was infatuated, one of the most beautiful women in town, this monk was totally infatuated with her. Oh, he wanted to disrobe, thought this woman is so beautiful, I, I can't carry on being a monk. 
Later on she died and they put her on the funeral pyre. So the Buddha takes the monk and says, well, do you want her now? He says, oh, now he understands. You know, when, you die, when somebody dies, uh, that attraction of just the basic lust of the senses it changes, doesn't it? You know, nobody likes a corpse. This is a kind of meditation you can do to reverse the 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 kind of the the power of the attraction usually for the opposite sex the visual all the senses that we usually get infatuated with and then of course the pleasure that you're seeking in that you can also contemplate you know, sexual pleasure ultimately is impermanent isn't it it it's an impermanent pleasure that comes and goes the pleasure or the happiness of a peaceful mind free from lust and the wisdom that understands the nature of lust as an impermanent desire that's far more satisfying far more peaceful far more uh, valuable to the human mind you know, any peace you gain from meditation you can start to see oh this is more, much better and this goes beyond um, life and death in the sense that the karmic results of practicing meditation developing wisdom and understanding and peace seeing the impermanence of this body letting go of some of your lustful attraction for this body that stays with you this life and into the next life whereas sexual attraction very fleeting isn't it it comes and goes very very impermanent So ultimately you can say, you know, when, the other part of this question is how, we, how should we look at this? Bija means just natural law, the way it is human uh, nature. So you can look at the, the body in this way. Once we're born, well, we're born as beings to, re, to reproduce. You know, that is normal. That's the biological function of this body, male or female. So in one sense, yeah, it is true. We, we are here to reproduce. So the Buddha gave us guidelines on that. He said, well, if you're living as a lay person, you might not be keeping celibacy like a monk or a lay person living in a monastery, but you keep the five precepts where you learn to manage your sexual desire. So you might have a partner and you have one partner and you reproduce to produce kids and you understand that. You're understanding, you're using your body in that way and you produce kids and that's a, to, to bring up kids in the world. You make a lot of good karma. You can help some other beings bring them into the world. We all love our kids. They bring us joy and we can do great good bringing up kids. But then you put a limit on it, don't you? You say, well, I'm here to, my body has this reproductive function. I'll have uh, my sexual relations with my partner. I'll produce kids. And then that's the end of it, really. Trouble is, it doesn't end there, does it? We get addicted to it. <laughs> so most of the sexual activity of the world is not just for reproduction. It's more the indulgence in the pleasure. And that's where so much suffering comes from, doesn't it? And how much we exploit each other through sex. We use it to harm each other sometimes. We use it to, for other means, other ends. Even in a relationship, it can become a great source of suffering. Because we've lost touch with what it's really, the real purpose of sexual activity is just to reproduce, that's all. But then it becomes an end in itself, it becomes a commercial thing. So we, you know, we sell all kinds of products and books and movies based on sex or around sex. And so a lot of suffering in this world based on this. Uh, and then of course the main problem is unfaithfulness as well. You break the third precept because of sexual desire. So you have a partner and then maybe not getting enough pleasure or your mind is so easily distracted or so easily addicted to that desire and the pleasure from it where you seek other partners and then you have all the suffering of a broken relationship or cheating on a partner. And if you just keep this one precept in the world, you know, so probably half the suffering of the world would be eradicated overnight. You know, we, we always tend to look on the ending of suffering in the world in a more material way, don't we? We have projects to help the poor, help the sick, help um, people who are in need in disaster zones and so on. But we should really have a project to help people keep the third precept. <laughs> You'd take away an awful lot of suffering in the world, wouldn't you? A lot of, lot of murders are committed over the third precept. 
a lot of jealousy and anger and ill will is created over the third precept when it's broken. When we understand this point, then you want to keep the precept because you know oh, it will keep me peaceful, keep my family peaceful, my partner, my children. If someone breaks the third precept, so many people are hurt, friends, relatives. If the precept is kept, so many people are helped because you become, your life becomes peaceful. Your partner can trust you, your friends trust you, everyone trusts you. So managing sexual energy, whether it's on the level of sila or on the level of meditation, you know, it's really the heart of the practice. Running out of time here. Dear Ajahn, mindfulness and awareness are the same? Question. I understand the problem. Often teachers like me a bit use these words interchangeably. Um, and sometimes it, it does mean the same thing, mindful awareness. Sometimes they use awareness just for the knowing of consciousness, meaning you know through your eyes, you see, you hear. That can be sense awareness, but... For myself, I usually use it interchangeably with, with mindfulness. It means awareness in the present moment or mindfulness of something. And you have to be mindful of something or aware of something. So if you're mindful of the breath or aware of the breath, and that's what we call um, mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati. Um, it means awareness of the breath. So it's really, it's just a... A word thing. Another question. The four accomplishments, itipada, chanda, jitta, virya, vimanksa. The three distortions, vipalasa, sanya, jitta, ditti. The four types of mindfulness, gaya, vetana, jitta, dhamma. What is jitta in each case? Oh, well, jitta usually refers to mind. Sometimes they call mind consciousness. So sometimes we call it jitta vijnana. But for ease, we just say mind. So when we talk about the three distortions, we have the distortion of sanya, is a distortion of the memory, the way you think about things, the memory and the way you remember things can get distorted by our defilements, our greed, our anger, delusion distorts our memory it distorts the mind because it takes away the purity of the mind whenever a, con a kilesa comes out it's conditioned by you know, the eyes see a form an attractive form might give rise to liking or greed, a form of greed the mind becomes defiled by that and becomes biased by that so we say jitta vipalasa Ditti means view, so ditti, vipalasa means view. When we talk about mindfulness of the jitta, we're talking about being mindful of the mind itself. Almost like looking at the mind as a vessel, an empty vessel. You know, sometimes your, your vessel is filled with unskillful, unwholesome states. So have greed, you know, thoughts, intentions rooted in greed. Anger, delusion. So we say the mind is defiled. Sometimes the mind is free from greed, free from hatred and anger, free from delusion. It's undefiled. But if you're looking at the mind with mindfulness, in, in the four foundations of mindfulness, you're just looking at the, the mind as it is when it's defiled, when it's not defiled. It's not judging it, so you're not saying, oh, I'm greedy, I'm a bad person and getting caught up into a lot of suffering about it. It's just knowing greed is like this. The mind is like this when greed is present. So it's a neutral observation or recognition of the state of mind with greed, with anger, with delusion, or without greed, without anger, without delusion. It's just bringing your, your own mindfulness to bear on your mind itself. Obviously to do that, you have to train your mind in mindfulness. You train it in sati to the point where you can actually know your own mind. One of the problems is normally we don't know our mind very well. We don't see it very clearly because of our moods, our thoughts. You might hold your attention for a moment. You think you've got your mind and it's off thinking something. And it becomes caught up into a whole stream of thoughts and moods. 
So mindfulness of the mind is just bringing your attention to the present moment and the mind as it is in the present moment. And to, to do that well, you have to train in mindfulness. Jitter in the four accomplishments, I mean it does refer to the mind, but it refers to the mind in the sense when the mind is concentrated and focused on the task in hand. Because these itipata referring to accomplishments as the various qualities of mind you need to accomplish the task, mainly the task of reaching enlightenment, the end of suffering. So like chanda means the, the desire, the, the wholesome desire to practice. Jitta means keeping your mind on the practice. Virya means the effort, the energy. Vimanksa means using your wisdom, your intelligence to to sort out any problems, obstacles that arise in the course of your practice and to bring your practice to fruition by seeing what you need to do and bringing your mind to truth. But jitta in that means just the mind that is focused and uh, concentrated on its task. They're very close to samadhi. So we run out of time. Oh, one more question. Abortion in the early stage is killing in Buddhism? Question mark. Well, as I said earlier, usually the way we describe it is at conception, consciousness arises in the fetus straight away at conception. Usually it's described like that. So therefore any termination of pregnancy after the first day of conception would be considered killing, breaking the first precept. We've reached the end of time for this session. So we now have walking meditation for about uh, 35 minutes. So if you want to change posture, feel free. Walk outside, try to practice mindfulness of the walking feeling of the feet touching the ground.